You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We have an unusual guest today. I'm the guest. We interview people from all over the place on the subject of history, and I write about history, specifically the history of Amsterdam, New York, the surrounding Montgomery County, and occasionally sojourns into Fulton County. I do a weekly column called Focus on History for the Daily Gazette. I have put out several books with my collected columns in them, but I haven't done that in a long time. So some of my columns, which I think are of more than passing interest, uh, I'd like to pass along to you right now. These are Focus on History columns uh, that ran during 2021, and we're going to start with one about horse racing in Amsterdam. Amsterdam is connected to the big track, if you will, the horse racing that takes place in Saratoga Springs, but did you know there was a racetrack in Amsterdam? I didn't know. Uh, or I'd heard rumors to that effect, but then was able to come up with uh, some material that indicated, yes, they did have a racetrack. And here's that particular focus on history column. In the 1890s and early 1900s, there was horse racing and other contests during the summer meet of the Amsterdam Fair and Driving Association. The association had a half-mile oval racetrack, and extensive grounds at McClary Park on the south side of the city. Uh, There is no McClary Park anymore, but uh, there are some remnants of it. The Johnstown Daily Republican newspaper in 1896 reported the opening of the Amsterdam racing season that year took place on Saturday, May 30th in the afternoon when purses amounting to $425 were awarded. The afternoon began with three trotting races. First race purse was $150. Second race, $100. Third race, $76. And the fourth race didn't have horses in it. It was a men's running race with a $75 purse. This was followed by something called a peg race for a $10 purse. Still haven't figured out what a peg race is. And the last event was a one-mile bicycle race for the championship of Montgomery County. In the 1930s, the neighborhood off Racecourse Street, yes, there's a Racecourse Street on the south side of Amsterdam, and the neighborhood off Racecourse Street and Grimm Avenue in the 1930s, where McClary Park and this uh, horse racing oval used to be, became known as Califano Heights. In 1929, a new athletic field had been built there, but apparently not a racetrack. The recorder in 1939, the recorder of the newspaper in Amsterdam, ran a vintage picture, photograph, taken just outside the old racetrack in the 1890s. Modern architecture was not employed in the construction of the small wooden shanty, wrote the recorder, which was the first ticket office of the Amsterdam Fair and Driving Association at McClary Park. The picture, 
showed a man in the ticket shed with a soapbox for a seat. An improvised slot in a piece of wood was used to pass in admittance money. The ticket seller was identified as Charles Gardner, prominent in the Republican Party. He was a former Sixth Ward supervisor. People called him Colonel. Standing outside the ticket booth was John Carmichael, also a well-known resident of Amsterdam. The recorder said he took a keen interest in sports. A third man in the picture was Peter Baird, a liveryman and contractor. All three had connections to the Fair Association. And this was a an interesting picture, sort of rough, if you will. Uh, th- these guys were sort of dressed, but it looked just a little sloppy. Uh, maybe not like the uh, clubhouse at the real racetrack up in Saratoga. The association in Amsterdam had more than a racetrack, though, at McClary Park back in the 1890s. The track enclosures contained a baseball diamond where early Amsterdam teams used to play. The recorder wrote, quote, It was there that Big Sigsby of Union College pitched his memorable game against the Baileys of Little Falls that finally landed him with the New York Giants for a trial. Charlie Sullivan, then of Amsterdam, now a lawyer in New York City, also a student at Union College then, was battery mate of Sigsby, that from the recorder. Wikipedia says that Seth DeWitt Sigsby, a native of Cobleskill, was briefly a pitcher for the New York Giants in 1893. The article didn't mention Union College. Sigsby died in Schenectady. The 1939 Recorder article on McClary Park added, the first Amsterdam High School football team in 1897 played its home games there. Then, too, the famous hub-and-hub hose races of the service and Bronson volunteer fire department teams were run off on the McClary track, and Jimmy Dime beat Ed Floyd in a great 100-yard foot race there. I do want to thank Jerry Snyder, who uh, provided me with this uh, photograph from uh, 1939. Uh, Jerry, one of the founders of historic Amsterdam League. A few words about the Sanford matinee races, which probably were a bigger deal than what I've been uh, describing that took place on the south side of Amsterdam. The Sanford matinee races took place on the north side from 1903 through 1907. The carpet tycoon, Stephen Sanford and his family, invited the people of Amsterdam to the Sanford matinee races at their Hurricana Thoroughbred Horse Farm on the Sunday closest to 4th of July. This is where the Sanfords raised their uh, racehorses, which raced at Saratoga and all the big tracks around the country. Remnants of the farm, later called Sanford Stud Farm, still can be seen on Route 30 north of Amsterdam City, and a group of the Friends of the Sanford Stud Farm are uh, renovating that facility, and they've had uh, different touristy events there. 
But during the Sanford matinee races, 1903-1907, trolleys ran continuously up Market and Meadow Streets. From there, horse-drawn wagons took people to the farm. Some automobiles went to the farm as well, but were not admitted to the grounds. There was food, drink, music, and horse racing. Some 15,000 people attended the events last year. Another story from Bob Cudmore's focus on history in the Daily Gazette. Mohawk Valley woman was a Civil War nurse. Anne Maria Bullock Scram was a volunteer nurse in Maryland during the Civil War. Montgomery County historian Kelly Yakabuchi Farquhar first learned of Scram when Farquhar consulted a computer list of the birthplaces of Civil War nurses. Anne Maria was born in Ephrata in 1834. She was the eldest daughter of Solomon and Sarah Bullock. Her father died in the early 1850s. Anne Maria married Daniel Scram of Ephrata in 1856. Their first child, a son, was born a year later. Before 1860, the Scrams moved to Amsterdam, where Daniel was a stonemason. When the war broke out, Daniel enlisted in the 32nd New York Volunteer Regiment and headed south, where he fought in the Battle of Antietam in September of 1862. Anne Maria wanted to do her part, according to Farquhar, and with child care and other assistance from relatives and friends, she went to Maryland as an unpaid volunteer. A sketchbook of Civil War nurses compiled 30 years later stated that Anne Maria worked under supervision of Dr. Charles Haynes, a surgeon from Brighton, Massachusetts, at a field hospital in a barn outside Frederick, Maryland. There she attended to wounded and sick soldiers. She may have cared for her husband, who was wounded in the Battle of Antietam. Farquhar said, quote, she was working probably 14 hours a day, and they were cooking and cleaning. They were feeding the soldiers. They were tending to their wounds. They were writing letters home for the soldiers, unquote. After eight months, Anne Maria was sick herself from disease or exhaustion. Daniel, too, was in rough shape from his wounds and was discharged from the army in December of 1862. Anne Maria left Maryland at the same time or a bit later, and they returned to Amsterdam. After the war, the Scrams had a daughter. By 1870, Anne Maria and her two children moved to Fort Plain, where her mother was living. Daniel was off finding work in Syracuse and Herkimer. Daniel had joined the Grand Army of the Republic, or G.A.R. post in Fort Plain, this kind of similar to the American Legion. Anne Maria became active in veterans' affairs, especially efforts to reach women nurse veterans. Farquhar said, quote, she was well known and traveled to Niagara Falls and to other states when they had reunions or different events. 
so she and Daniel traveled far and wide, unquote. There is a pension application on file at the National Archives for Anne Maria, but Farquhar so far has not been able to access the document. Farquhar said, quote, Daniel had attempted suicide. He'd lost his eyesight. I'm sure he had PTSD. It seemed from everything I can find that she kept him going, supporting him. Unfortunately, they had family setbacks. Their son had been an alcoholic and had some difficulties with his own family. Their daughter died at the age of 36, unquote. A few years before the Scrams died, they sold their home in Fort Plain and moved to Albany. Apparently, one of their grandchildren lived there. Anne Maria died in 1911. Daniel died in 1915 at the Soldier's Home in Steuben County. They were both buried at the Fort Plain Cemetery. Farquhar has great respect for Anne Maria, saying of her, quote, She faced a lot of adversity. Being near the front lines of battle must have been mind-shattering. Just the horrors that she probably saw and what she had to do to provide some level of comfort for these men that she didn't know. Maybe she did know some of them. Maybe some of them had served with her husband and had been from Amsterdam. That just takes a lot of resolve, I think and everything she went through afterward. Another story from Bob Cudmore's Focus on History in the Daily Gazette. Tallner's Ice Cream in Fort Johnson. A banana split at Tallner's Ice Cream on Route 5 in Fort Johnson was the start of a beautiful relationship for Barry and Barbara Chase, who now live in Edinburgh. Barry Chase, originally of Fishhouse Road in Galway, and Barbara Schmidt of Caroline Street in Amsterdam, were cruising in separate cars along Main Street in the Carpet City, as Amsterdam was known, in the late 1950s. You remember cruising. I mean, this is like a scene out of American graffiti. And probably your town had ice cream hangouts where a lot of teenagers used to hang out and have ice cream and maybe forge relationships. Barbara's friend, Dottie Foss, was in the group of people cruising and intended to set up her friend with Barry, who was home from the U.S. Navy. I don't know if you were following the intrigue here. Barry and Barbara Chase, they are getting together. They ended up, this whole group of teens, or maybe they were in their early 20s, they ended up at Tallner's, where Barbara, who loved ice cream, ordered only a cone to be polite. Her girlfriend Dottie insisted that Barry buy Barbara a banana split. The deal was sealed, and they married in 1961. Barry and Barbara have six children, 15 grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. One of their daughters, Susan Lemaire, lives in Perth. Barry served 22 years with the U.S. Navy and 15 years with General Electric. Barbara's late brother-in-law, Bud Sherman, worked as a soda jerk 
at Talner's for a time. Talner's occupied a white building on Route 5 near the railroad tracks west of the main gate for St. Mary's Cemetery in Fort Johnson. Willis Talner Sr. started the ice cream shop with his father, carpenter Fred Talner, in 1935. Talner's offered ice cream to go in quarts, half gallons, and cones, plus sundaes, banana splits, and their famous brown cow, a chocolate milkshake. They also provided hamburgers, hot dogs, and car hop service. Often, they stayed open until midnight. They took out ads for women who wanted to be car hops. Jerry Snyder of Historic Amsterdam League recalled going to Talner's from Amsterdam with his father and grandfather. Quote, The three of us used to sit out on the porch after supper at my grandparents' house across from the Betts Funeral Home on Guy Park Avenue and watch the cars and people go by mid to late 1950s. My grandparents never had a car, and Grandpa would say to my father, I'll buy if you want to go get a brown cow. That was usually all it took to send us on a road trip to Fort Johnson. In April 1955, Talner's closed because of family illness. Willis Talner Sr. died three months later at age 47. Also in 1955, Willis's father, Fred Talner, and his wife, Mabel, retired and moved to Yonkers, New York, where one of their daughters lived. Fred died in 1957 at age 76. Mabel passed away in Yonkers four months later. They were buried at Pine Grove Cemetery in Tribes Hill. The family soldiered on. Willis Sr.'s sons, Willis Jr. and Ron, are remembered from the ice cream shop's later years. Willis Jr., known as Bill, married Fran Bujanowski, who had worked as a car hop. They've relocated to western New York, recently celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary. They have four children and grandchildren and even great-grandchildren. As his father did, Ron Talner, Bill's brother, died young, leaving his wife, Peggy Van Patten Talner, and one son. Talner's eventually closed, and the building was torn down, along with many other structures, when Route 5 in Fort Johnson and Tribes Hill was rebuilt as a four-lane highway in the early 1960s. In 1974, Mrs. Joseph Brunt, a longtime Fort Johnson resident, wrote a letter to the editor of the Recorder newspaper listing the many vanished businesses, including Talner's, that she recalled in Fort Johnson. Are you ready? Here's her quote. Whalen's Store Post Office, Scott's Ice Cream Parlor and Gas Station, Sweets Furniture, Colangelo's Fish Market, Bonus Market, Higgins Trucks, Firth Barbershop, Horrigan's Barbershop, Orr's Garage, Bennett Convalescent Home, Richfield Gas, 
Yakono's Fruit and Groceries, Wilds Garage, Elmer's Traveling Grocery and Meats, Dr. Smith, and Grace Church. And Mrs. Brunt went on, Before I came here, there were more. Mosier's Grocery, Stoddard's Grocery, Brunt and Son Grocery, Osterhout's Market, Marshall's General Store and Post Office, Shepherd's Coal, Schwab's Barbershop, Aiken Park Roller Skating, and A.V. Morris Knitting Mills that burned. And now, a brief word from our sponsor. We support the Historian's Podcast through our fundraising campaign. You can give in two ways. You can find on our website at the top of the blue banner to the right of the page, a link to our GoFundMe campaign. If you click on that link, they'll walk you through the process and you can uh, give to the Historian's Podcast electronically using your credit card. Or, if you want to make an old-fashioned donation, make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. And now another story from Bob Cudmore's focus on history in the Daily Gazette. Amsterdam DJs in Armed Forces Radio. Sam Zerlo grew up on Amsterdam's Pulaski Street. That's the street I lived on when I was a kid. And Sam was starting his radio career back when he was a very young man. While waiting for a radio job to open up back home, back home in Amsterdam, he was working at a station in Lumberton, North Carolina, when he was drafted. The Army needed people to staff the Armed Forces Radio Service, or AFRS, in Europe, where American troops were deployed, lined up against Soviet Union forces in the Cold War. Sam Zerlo said there was a story among the U.S. soldiers that the Army, at least at that time, was actively looking for young American radio performers to draft. Zerlo recalled the facility where he was stationed was in a former castle in Frankfurt, Germany. AFRS programs were heard throughout Europe by American troops and also by European civilians, some behind the Iron Curtain. Americans stationed in Frankfurt monitored Radio Moscow constantly, and the engineers at Frankfurt played for Zerlo a Radio Moscow recording that talked about him as a new voice on AFRS, giving information on where Sam was from, where he entered the service, his age and appearance, and making the claim that Sam Zerlo had attended a U.S. propaganda school. Zerlo said he never went to propaganda school. Apparently the military has them but that he did read what he called straight news and introduce popular songs when he was on the air for Armed Forces Radio. By the summer of 1953, Zerlo was back in Amsterdam and had a nighttime record show called Best of Wax on that city's local station, WCSS. Through the years, 
Zerlo was on the air primarily at WCSS, but also at WENT in Gloversville, Johnstown, and at WVTL in Amsterdam. He retired from his popular talk show on WCSS in 2017. You may know Sam Zerlo from a different medium. He was a reporter for the Daily Gazette for many years, reporting on Mohawk Valley News between 1957 and 1992. Sam and his wife Hattie live in Tribes Hill, a suburb of Amsterdam. An interview with Sam Zerlo done by Gary Dillon was featured in 1953 in a magazine called Community Magazine for a Better Amsterdam. Local history researcher Gavin Murdoch said the Walter Elwood Museum has copies of Community Magazine, and Gavin Murdoch has been putting some of these magazines on Facebook. At their peak, he said, 7,000 copies were delivered free to homes in Amsterdam. It ran on its advertising income. It was published by the Franklin Press, located on Chuckdenunda Street. In the early 1950s, Community Magazine also profiled pioneer WCSS broadcaster Jack Griswold, who also had Armed Forces radio experience. An Amsterdam native, Griswold joined the WCSS staff when the local station began broadcasting. He'd been working as chief announcer at WKRT Radio in Cortland, New York. Local business leaders, headed by former Amsterdam Mayor Arthur Carter, formed Community Service Broadcasting and started WCSS in 1948, the Carpet City's first radio station. A military veteran, Griswold left WCSS for a time when he was recalled for a year of Army service in Korea. Jack Griswold hosted a five-hour nightly disc jockey show playing the character the Rice Paddy Ranger for Armed Forces Radio. In 1953, he married Rosemary Meter and returned to WCSS to host music programs, including the Jack Griswold Show, What's New, and Mohawk Hit Parade. He also interviewed local people on The Mic is Yours and did a contest called Hold the Phone. Griswold would call local people who registered for this opportunity who could win an ever-mounting jackpot of prizes for identifying the mystery tune. Jack Griswold left WCSS for a radio job in Pennsylvania, according to Sam Zerlo. Walt Gaines was hired as WCSS manager in the early 1950s, and on his watch, entertainment and controversy ensued for a few years. Walt Gaines did several radio programs himself, Singspiration, Walt's Mike, and Midday Merry-Go-Round. Gaines unsuccessfully tried to start another radio station in Amsterdam and later headed WLFH in Little Falls. Succeeding Walt Gaines as WCSS manager 
was Phil Spencer. Spencer ultimately bought the station and operated it for many years. I always want to thank Phil Spencer because he gave me my first job, not only my first job in radio, uh, when I was hired as a Sunday announcer at WCSS in 1962. You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode, which has featured some of my history columns, Focus on History, from the pages of the Daily Gazette newspaper. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.